Thank you, Danton, for reading our scripture tonight. We're glad that you're here. We want to encourage everyone to make it a point to be here Wednesday night for our Bible study. We're grateful for the opportunities that we have to assemble as God's people to study and to worship and to be together as Christians. We're going to be looking tonight at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to invite you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58, the passage that was read a moment ago. I do want to mention, and I always try to mention it, that I know we have visitors with us and we're always very happy to have you. We want you to, we want you to know that we're, we feel honored that you've come our way. We want to encourage you to consider the work here. I really believe we have a great, great congregation of people and we would love to have you come and to work and to worship with us in this community. Tonight we want to talk about the promise of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul goes to great lengths to stress the resurrection. And there are two things that really stand out in this chapter. First, he validates the resurrection of Jesus Christ and emphasizes the fact that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain, our faith is vain, and we are still in our sins. And so he would say that we are of all men most pitiable. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the first few verses stresses the eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And I would point out that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, according to Romans chapter 1 at verse 4. The second part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul strives to validate our resurrection, the fact that we will one day be resurrected from the grave. Interestingly, when you begin to look at the New Testament, you find that the basis of our hope is the resurrected Jesus. Some have said that this is a cardinal doctrine of the New Testament because really and truly without the resurrection of Christ, Christianity would be a meaningless religion. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we have been begotten again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a result of his resurrection that we have hope of heaven itself. And so tonight we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and I want you to think with me for just a minute or two about the promise of the resurrection. As we think about the resurrection of Christ and its significance to us as members of the body of Christ, we begin by first evaluating the resurrection. And really, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's interesting to note the details that Paul goes into talking about the resurrection and its significance to us as members of the human family. So let's just evaluate what Paul says. I want to begin by talking for just a moment or two about the time of the resurrection. As we contemplate what Paul has to say about the future resurrection, many times people will ask the question, well, when is that going to occur? Note with me what is said in verse 51. Paul said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So let me ask this question. When is the time of the resurrection? According to Paul, it will occur at the last trumpet. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul wrote to comfort Christians that had lost loved ones in Christ. And he said that those who had lost loved ones that were members of the body of Christ do not sorrow as others who have no hope. He went on to say, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. And then he talks about the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus. Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. That's exactly what he said to the church at Corinth. The resurrection will occur at the last trumpet. You need, you need to understand that when Jesus comes, all the graves will be opened. In John chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said, Marvel not, the hour is coming when all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those that have done good unto the resurrection of life and those that have done evil unto the resurrection of condemnation. And then listen to what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. He said, I am he who was dead and am alive forevermore. Amen. He said, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. When Jesus comes, he said that he would come with all of his holy angels. At his second coming, as Paul said, the trumpet will sound. The dead will arise. We will be ushered before the very throne of God. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said, that when he comes with all of his holy angels, all nations shall be gathered before him. He's talking there about his second coming, the resurrection of the dead, the just and the unjust, and that great assembly that will be before him as he sits upon the throne of judgment. And so the time of his coming will signal the resurrection. Now there's a second thing I want you to see as we think about the resurrection of Christ and Paul's evaluation of the resurrection. And that has to do with the truth concerning the resurrection. Now, as we look at verses 50 and following and really some of the preceding verses, Paul goes into an explanation about our future transformation. But I want to begin in verse 50 again. Here's what Paul said, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment. Let me just inject this very quickly. The term moment here is the very word that we get the term Adam from. It is transliterated atomos. And really it means that which cannot be cut into or divided. And what Paul is saying is that when Jesus comes at the last trumpet, 
When these, when these events begin to unfold, they will occur in a split second. That's the best way I know to describe it. It'll happen that fast. So what about the truth as it pertains to our transformation? Now you have to understand that when death comes, the soul returns to God who gave it life. That's what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 at verse 7. The body, however, is placed in the cemetery. There's the physical body, the remains, that are buried. But the soul, that inward part of man, of you and me, goes back to God who gave it life. Now Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 at verse 7 that the body will return to the dust from which it was taken. The soul, however, goes, as we said this morning, to the Hadean realm. And there are two places spoken of in Scripture relative to the Hadean realm. The righteous go to paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. Same thing as Abraham's bosom in Luke chapter 16. The unrighteous, however, will go to a place called Tartarus, T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S, and it is spoken of in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, when Paul, or rather when Peter talked about the angels that sinned, and God cast them down to hell or to, to Taurus. And there they await the judgment of God. So at death, the soul, the spirit, that inward part of us, that inward part of me and you, goes to the Hadean realm. If we're righteous, we go to paradise. If we're unrighteous, we go to Taurus. Well, what about the body? The body's placed in the cemetery, as I said a moment ago. But what about when Jesus comes? What's going to occur then? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul said definitively that Jesus is coming. He'll descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. When he said, the dead shall be raised in John chapter 5, he's talking about that physical body that will come forth from the grave. Now, sometimes we have questions about the physical body that's going to emerge from the grave. And sometimes people will say, well, what if that body has long since returned to dust? And my response would be, think about it this way. If God had the ability or the power to create this universe, and he did, then do you really think he's going to have any trouble bringing a body up out of the cemetery? Jesus himself said that he has the keys to the cemetery. One day he's going to unlock the cemetery doors and all the graves are going to be opened and all are going to come forth. Well, what about that body? In verse 35, Paul raises a question and it's really a question that somebody might raise in anticipation of this resurrection that he's talking about. And so he says, someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And then listen to what he says. And with what body do they come? In verse 50, Paul had said, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This tent or tabernacle that I reside in, it's going to one day turn to dust. When it is raised, that is, if Jesus doesn't come during my lifetime. 
if this body or when this body is raised, it will be raised, but it will not be composed of flesh and blood. It'll be a different kind of body. In verse 42, here's what Paul said. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Listen to him in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, he said, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. He said, this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Let me just pause there for a minute. I know many of us have a lot of questions about the resurrected body. And you're not alone. And, and to be quite frank with you, I can't tell you what that body's going to look like. And the reason is because I don't know. Because the Bible does not amplify about what that body's going to look like. We do have some passages of Scripture that talk about this changed body, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for one. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul emphasized the fact that those of us who belong to the body of Christ have a citizenship which is in heaven. And he said, whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 21 he said, who shall change our vile body, that it might be conformed like unto his glorious body whereby he is able to subdue all things even to himself. And then in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 2, John said that it has not been revealed what we shall be. But when he is revealed, John said, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So I don't know what the physical body is going to look like. I just know that when Jesus comes, my soul, my spirit, my, the inward part of me, that is the inward man, will be reunited with my body. What kind of body is it going to be? I don't know. I just know it's, going to, it's not going to be a body that is composed of flesh and blood. And think about this for a minute. The human body, as we know it, is a beautiful thing. The Bible talks about how we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And we talk about how we have been made in the image and the likeness of Almighty God. And there is this inward part of us that will live forever. And yet the body gives way to decay, terminates in death, and is one day raised. In my mind, to just know that this body will be resurrected and reunited with my spirit or my soul and I can live with God forever, that's enough for me. I can leave it in the hands of God. I don't have all the answers with regard to this subject, but I know this. The same God that created this universe and sustains it today, as the Hebrew writer said, he upholds all things by the word of his power. I believe 
that he can bring that body forth from the grave. Many times when I conduct funeral services, I will read 1 Corinthians, or rather, well, sometimes I'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50, 50 through 58. Other times I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Because in verse 18, here's what Paul said about those who die in Christ and the future resurrection. He said, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I think what, what Paul is saying is, death is not the end. When we stand at the side of an open grave, we need to understand, that's not the end. The grave is not the end, as some suppose. But there will be a resurrection. There's a third thing I want to call attention to as we note Paul's evaluation of the resurrection. And that is, I want you to think about the termination that will take place at the resurrection. There are two things that are going to transpire at the resurrection. Number one, based on what he says back in verse 24, God will be receptive of the kingdom. Here's what Paul said, Then cometh the end. What end? When the last trumpet sounds at the Lord Jesus Christ coming. He said, Then cometh the end. And what's going to happen? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to give the kingdom to the Father. When Jesus comes, it does not signal the inauguration of the kingdom but rather the termination of the kingdom. When Jesus comes, he's not going to set up shop here on earth and reign and rule out of Jerusalem and have an earthly kingdom, but rather the kingdom according to the apostle Paul is going to be delivered up to God the Father. And there we shall ever be forevermore. That's one of the, one of the benefits of being a part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the savior of the body. The body the church, the kingdom, synonymous terms used interchangeably numerous times throughout the New Testament. So those of us who belong to the body of Christ, we will be delivered up to God the Father. And then there is a second thing that's going to happen. And that is the last enemy to be destroyed, according to Paul in verse 26, is death. Listen now to what he says. In verse 54, relative to the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, he said, death is swallowed up in victory. And then in verse 55, he quotes from the prophet Hosea. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, death as we know it will be no more. And why is that? Because Paul said the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 4, the apostle John pictures the new heavens and the new earth, as Peter would say, wherein dwells righteousness. And in verse 4 he said, but in that beautiful city that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then here's what he says. 
And there shall be no more death. Why? Because death has been swallowed up in victory. Because the last enemy to, to be destroyed is death. And I would point out that when Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Can you imagine being in a place where death will reign no more? We live in a world subjected to pain and suffering and to death. And every day on planet Earth, thousands upon thousands of people step out into eternity but to know that death will no longer have power over us. What's a great thought. To know that we can be in that beautiful land, heaven, and we'll not taste death anymore. John said there won't be any more pain, no sorrow, no crying. And the reason? Because these former things have passed away. It's all behind us. We're in that beautiful, beautiful city. Here's what Jesus said. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. One day we'll be together in heaven. Not only will we be together, but we will be with those that we have known and loved and worked and worshipped and served Almighty God with. We'll be there forevermore. That ought to be our ultimate goal, to go to heaven. There's a second thing I want you to see as it relates to the promise of the resurrection, and that is the exhortation given by Paul in light of the future resurrection. I want to begin by talking about faithfulness, the importance of faithfulness. Here's what Paul said in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, he's just talked about the resurrection. He's validated, authenticated the fact that Jesus broke the bonds of the tomb. And on the basis of his resurrection, we too will one day be resurrected from the grave. And so in light of these glorious truths, here's what he said. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. All Paul is saying is this. Don't let anybody, don't let anything undermine your faith. Don't let anybody push you around to the point that you give up your faith. There are, there are a lot of reasons why people will sometimes quit the faith. Demas, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, quit the faith because he fell in love with the world. And yet John said, love not the world, neither the things which are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, he said, are not of the Father, but are of the world, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of the Father abideth forever. When people hook their wagons to the world, they're hooking themselves up to that which is not going to last. The world takes many casualties. And then there are some that allow the heartaches and the troubles and trials of life to destroy their faith. As I mentioned this, moment, this morning in James chapter 1, James said, Can it all joy when you fall into manifold trials, knowing that the trying of your faith 
works perseverance. Trials can be an asset if we use them to better our lives and to become more faithful to God. The flip side is, negatively speaking, we can allow them to crush our faith. And then there are some that because they have not been grounded in the truth of Almighty God, because their faith is not what it ought to be, they are tossed to and fro, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4.14. They are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Whatever comes down the pike, they're gullible. They are open prey. And so Paul here is saying what you need to do is be steadfast in the faith. Be immovable. Don't let anything, don't let anyone come between you and your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how you can do that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6, 33. Make sure that your life has priorities. and Make sure your priorities are what they ought to be. That is, God the Father. The Lord occupies the top tier. And then your family and friends and whatever else. But most importantly, make sure that the Lord is number one in your life. And if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, you know what? He'll be first. He will occupy the top tier in your life. There's a second thing I want to call attention to. We talk about faithfulness to the Lord. What about our fruitfulness for the Lord? Listen to what Paul said in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of the resurrection, the resurrection to come, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How should I regard the work of the Lord? I ought to be busy. Listen again to what he said. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. What's the old saying? An idle mind is the devil's workshop. We ought to be busy in the kingdom of God. Jesus said in John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. How do we bear fruit in our Christian lives? Well, one of the ways is by demonstrating a holy, godly, righteous life. A second way would be leading people to Christ. As Solomon said, he that winneth souls is wise. Fulfilling the words of the Great Commission to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. But there's a third way. And that is by digging in and making sure that we're constantly busy in the kingdom of God. I mentioned a moment ago some of the ways that we bear fruit. It all begins and ends with attitude. Think about what Paul said in, in the book of, well, think about Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He said, we are to be zealous of good works. Paul had said in Ephesians 2.10 that we've been created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before prepared that we should walk in them. He would say in that same verse that we are his workmanship. In other words, we're his masterpiece. As his masterpieces, we ought to be busy in the kingdom of God. It ought to be a labor of love. When he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he recalled their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and also in the sight of God and our Father. Here were people that were laboring because they loved the Lord and because they wanted to be involved. Paul said that we ought to always abound in the work of the Lord. There are a lot of things that you can do, as I mentioned a moment ago. You can reach out to the lost. You can visit the sick. You can send cards of encouragement. You can make telephone calls. There are so many, many things that you can do for the kingdom of God. Find your niche and get busy. And then there's a third, or rather a second thing. We talk about our regard for the work, but what about our reward for the work? Listen again to Paul. Knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. To live a Christian life, to serve in the kingdom of God, to be faithful day in and day out, to do my very best, to glorify God and to be in, involved in his kingdom has its rewards, doesn't it? I can promise you this, if you will get involved in the work of the kingdom and you, and you are productive in the kingdom, God's not going to forget your labors. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, that God is not unrighteous to forget our work and labor of love. What's the Lord going to say to those of us that have been faithful to him at the very end of the road of life? Well done, good and faithful servant. To know that our work here on earth does not go unnoticed. Let me, let me say this very quickly. There are a lot of people in our world, when they get to the end of life, they regret some of the things that they've said and done, activities that they've been involved in, and there are a lot of folks that will sometimes lament the fact that they were not as productive as they could have been and should have been in the kingdom of God. There are some that will say, you know what, I wasted a lot of good years. Years that I could have used to the glory of God. We can't change the past, can we? All we can do, if that be the case, is to repent and try to be productive until the end. As Paul said, redeeming the time in Ephesians 5. But the flip side of that is, I think about those that have worked, they've served, they've worshipped regularly. They've been what they ought to be before Almighty God. When they come to the end of the road of life, I've yet to hear anybody regret having been a servant of the Lord. I've never had somebody tell me, you know what, I really wish I'd never spent all those years serving God, leading others to Christ, being involved in the work of the church. Sometimes I hear people talk about they wish they had done more. But I don't ever hear anybody say, you know what, that was an absolute total waste of time. And Paul here is saying it's not a waste of time to be busy and productive in the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because Jesus said, that he will bestow on us the crown of life, the Stephanos, the victor's crown. When Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy, he said, the time of my departure is at hand. I'm already being offered. He said, I fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me on that day. And not to me only, but to all them that have loved his appearing. Paul had in his sights the crown of life. 
And I hope and pray that we too have that same, that same vision. We want the crown of life. I close tonight by saying there will be a resurrection when Jesus comes. And so as children of God, we can take heart because we know that those who die in Christ, they're with the Lord. When we place that body in the ground, again, we know it's not going to stay there. But one day God will raise that body up. He will reunite the soul and body together. And forevermore we'll be in his presence. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we stand in awe of your word, of your great power, the hope of the resurrection. And Father, while we may not understand what the body will be like at the resurrection, we believe that what you have said is true and we trust in you. Give us the wisdom to live our lives here upon this earth so that we'll be faithful and fruitful every step of the way. And Father, we give thanks for the provisions that have been made for us and the promises that we have regarding the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to come to Christ? Could I encourage you to put Jesus Christ on in baptism? The reason you need to be baptized into Christ is because those who are baptized enjoy salvation, Mark 16, 16. They are said to enjoy the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. The washing away of sins, Acts 22, 16. Baptism, of course, preceded by faith repentance, and confession. God then adds those who are baptized into Christ to the body. And Jesus is the Savior of that body. You may be here tonight and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ. Could we encourage you to come home? Could we encourage you to make things right with a loving God? John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We want to go to heaven. And we want to make sure that we can take as many people with us as humanly possible. If you're not heaven bound tonight, why not come home? Come back to a loving God who will abundantly pardon us. We stand and sing. Amen.